0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'd like to welcome you again uh, to the Global Symmetry Journal's podcast series. This is going to be episode 22, and in this case, I'm interviewing James Goldgeier, who is um, with us, uh, and, and focused on the series, Shaking the Global Order, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. Uh, Jim is the, is a professor of international relations at the School of International Service at American University. He is currently a visiting senior fellow at CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, and uh, he's also uh, the Library of Congress Chair in U.S.-Russia Relations. Um, it's a real pleasure uh, to have uh, Jim with us. Uh, in the continuing examination of um, uh, President Trump and his administration on American foreign policy. So let's uh, turn and welcome uh, Jim to our uh, studio. Well, uh, welcome, Jim. It's a pleasure to have you with us on Shaking the Global Order, uh, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. Broadcast, it's episode 22.
1: Delighted to be with you.
0: That's great. So, Jim, I wanted to start off by uh, asking you a couple questions. Uh, You recently wrote a piece in the Washington Quarterly, uh, and it was entitled, Misunderstood Roots of International Order and Why They Matter Again. So from my perspective, my immediate question is, so uh, describe these roots of the order and why are they misunderstood?
1: Well, I think the most important thing to realize about the order is that while most people think of it in the context of the Cold War and the U.S.-Soviet rivalry, that's not why it was built in the first place. It was, of course, adapted to the Cold War and the U.S.-Canadian, European, mm-hmm. Japanese uh, relationships at the at the centerpiece uh, and and the G seven and so on were were all adapted for the for the Cold War. the The order was built by people who in 1944 and 1945 were focused on the past. These are people who had gone through two World Wars and a Great Depression. Uh, you know, we're marking uh, this fall the the 100th uh, anniversary uh, of the armistice, the end of uh, of the First World War, mm-hmm. uh, they then, you know, had a brief period, the interwar period, they then had a depression, they then had a Second World War, and they were eager to do something about what they viewed as the causes of those devastating events.
0: And, and so I take it in part that uh, you don't agree with our, our colleague uh, Graham Allison from Harvard who recently wrote that it was exactly uh, that, that this was accidental and a product of uh of the cold war it had nothing to do with the period prior uh prior to the end of the second world war
1: oh yeah i couldn't disagree with that m- more uh, yeah. you know mm-hmm. what the piece talks about is the way in which those individuals were so worried about how hypernationalism and protectionism had devastated their world and they were looking to create institutions and rules that would somehow mitigate those two things so that we wouldn't get the return to hyper nationalism that we would get a, a emphasis on free trade rather than protectionism mm-hmm. and you no, know, this is why this is why i wrote the piece because it, i'm so worried today because we have a president of the united states donald trump who champions these two issues, hyper-nationalism and protectionism. Fair I mean, enough. That's, that's the, that, to me, is why he poses such a threat to the order. Oh, okay. So
0: the, the, <clears throat> the heartbeat of their uh, reaction was uh, to try and deal with uh, hyper-nationalism and protectionist trade that they saw as, as really the causes, the root causes uh, of the conflict, obviously, 1939, etc., I guess the question is so what did they do what were, what were they thinking about at the time, and what did they- you know implement in order to constrain uh those uh those forces
1: well you know particularly on the uh, on the economic side with the creation of the international monetary fund mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the uh the world bank uh what you know, was initially the general agreement on tariffs and trade and, and ultimately in the 1990s becomes the world trade organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, The goal was to try to create some mechanisms that could stabilize the international economy and a process by which uh, countries could pursue, especially at the beginning in manufacturing, you know, lower trade barriers uh, so that you would be able to grow overall global trade. Also, you know, The the United Nations was seen as an important body, and and it, of course, does truly become a casualty of the Cold War. It can't really operate as intended uh, because of the U.S.-Soviet rivalry and the fact that each had a veto. Mm -hmm. Uh, But clearly, a, a huge rationale for the U.N. was a notion of collective security that would Really work in the way the League of Nations hadn't, whereby you you would have an international community that would be able to do something if strong countries felt uh, that they sh- they had reason to invade their weaker neighbors. And you know, again, it doesn't it's not able to really operate during the Cold War uh, as right. uh, intended. But but as soon as the Cold War is over, you have the phenomenon of Iraq. Invading Kuwait in August of 1990, and the UN then does work as intended. The international community comes together and uh, forces Saddam Hussein, uh, the his military, to leave Kuwait, and Kuwait returns as an as an independent country. That's that's exactly that scenario of 1990-91 is exactly what the founders were hoping they could achieve. Uh, back in 1945 when they set out the Mm -hmm. the post-war order.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what's interesting, and many would suggest that the 1990s are the anomaly, uh, that, uh, you know, obvious... uh, Yes, the UN may have, at least for a period, operated uh, in the way it was thought and intended to be by by those who were attempting to create it, particularly among uh, American officials, but not only um british officials and others so you know in the face of the cold war and so forth what was the system that you know was constructed uh in order to deal with the issues of hyper nationalism and protectionist trade when you've mentioned already the um the the gap but what else was there what else was put in place in the face of a world that was divided obviously between east and west
1: Right. And so the fact of the matter is, you know, what we now call the liberal international order was essentially the confined to the West during the Cold War and then expands after the Cold War is over. Probably the greatest example is what starts out at Europe as the coal and steel community and eventually becomes the European Union. And Mm -hmm. important to remember how, how much the United States supported the integration of Europe and the effort to uh, eliminate the problems that nationalism had created in Europe prior to the Second World War. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the European Union was an extraordinary achievement for Europe and for the United States. The United States should take a lot of pride in in the way in which it supported European integration. Again, huge change now with the president of the United States who uh, has tremendous antipathy toward the EU. Mm -hmm. And... An EU that now views the United States under Donald Trump as uh, as a threat.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, let me let me get to some of these pieces because clearly there are a variety of actors that are needing to respond. But before I get there, I presume that you acknowledge or and, and accept uh, kind of the. John Eikenberry view of that order that we were you were just talking about which was that it was basically American-led uh, you know it was for all practical purposes there was the U.S. as the hegemon and a whole variety of actors uh, that it focused on let alone dealing with you know the questions of the Cold War which would be the Soviet Union and, and communist China at the time um, and and what then were those, you know, kind of institutional elements there that were critical uh, to th- that development. I mean, do you do you accept Eikenberry's view of, of, of the American leadership?
1: I do. It was absolutely critical. I think that's one of the reasons why it's, you know, so interesting to think about today what elements can continue if the United States no longer leads. But, you know, certainly the economic institutions uh, were there Right. From the start, uh, with the onset of the Cold War, uh, you do have the u s system of alliances, and so you uh-huh. get, for example, NATO, which becomes uh, a very important piece of this and and I think one of the things that comes with u s leadership is also u s violations of the very rules that it was <laughs> championing and I think this is why you get so much criticism today i mean you know. There are a lot of people who will rightly say about the liberal international order, well, you know, it was never all that liberal or all that international or, or all that orderly. Right. Uh, and, I, and of course, you know, things like the Vietnam War uh, were, uh, you know, huge mistakes on the part of the United States. And the United States was often hypocritical mm-hmm. uh, as a, a leader. But still, at the end of the day, there was some notion that the U.S. and its allies again, the Europeans, Canada, Japan, you know, ultimately uh, South Korea and Taiwan, that there was, you know, that there was an emphasis on democracy, on free markets, on respect for the rule of law, respect for human rights, uh, and that these things were important and that the United States was willing to, to bear some burden in being a global leader mm-hmm. uh, because it found the promotion of these things to be in its interests.
0: Right. And uh, yeah, I take it, and partly what you already described, uh, our good f- friend, uh, the President of the United States, uh, seems to look rather askance at exactly bearing uh, these kinds of burdens.
1: Right. So from his perspective, basically, you know, he always has this thing about everybody's laughing at the U.S. Right. everybody. right. It's basically that, yes, the, so the U.S. defends everyone else. And our allies, our friends, you know, which other presidents have seen as enhancing American power mm-hmm. and strengthening the U.S. role in the world. After all, the U.S. in its in its global role and in its relations with countries like China and Russia is hugely advantaged by having allies. Trump sees it quite the opposite. He looks at allies as a drag on the United States, mm-hmm. that the U.S. has paid for defending them while they got rich. Uh, and that they're just laughing at us and he's going to put a stop to it.
0: Okay. So, and you mentioned one of the, and I'd like you to kind of focus your attention on it. Uh, one of the um, uh, institutional elements, particularly on the security dimension, which is uh, NATO. Uh, and and what, you know, this is a subject you've looked at. So what does NATO and the obviously the countries that make up NATO, what do they do in the face of Trump's skepticism over this uh, alliance structure?
1: Well, it is a conundrum for them. And I think they have two basic choices and they're not mutually exclusive. But, you know, the thing that they have to try to figure out is, How seriously do they take his rhetoric, which is very anti-ally, versus the policies that are largely unchanged from where they were before? And so the Pentagon under Secretary Mattis, certainly, you know, the ambassador at NATO, uh, Kay Bailey Hutchison, you know, have made strong statements in support of NATO, has strong popular support on Capitol Hill, strong support among the public and the U S is still, the troops are stationed in Europe. It's participating in reassuring Eastern members. It just, it was involved in this enormous exercise in Northern Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the, the sanctions are still in place on Russia over Ukraine. The policy largely looks unchanged. So from the European perspective and the Canadian perspective, you know, looking at this is well, The policies are the policies that we like to see, but the rhetoric is disastrous. So, you know, one option, of course, is to think, well, we just wait the guy out. Um, But if you think he has a chance, which he does, of winning a second term, Mm -hmm. that's that's problematic. Uh, The second is to try to think, well, are there ways that we can increase our own autonomy so that we're not as dependent on the United States? And I think for the Europeans, this really is the big question right now. Mm-hmm. They are certainly talking more about autonomy. They're 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 talking about different aspects of it. Some, in the case of the French president uh, Macron, is talking about a, a European army and really trying to do more within Europe. Uh, the Germans are more focused on on economic autonomy, especially in the context of trying to figure out how to keep the Iran deal alive right. Uh, right. given the U.S. sanctions. So, so I think. I think we'll probably see a little of both—a little bit of, of European hoping that they can wait it out, um, mm-hmm. you know—and then also trying to think about whether or not they can do things to become more autonomous. But but that's pretty tough when you've been as dependent as they have on the U.S. for so long. It's tough to change course.
0: Well, and let me let me drill a little uh, further down because you know in. In combination obviously with NATO there is, and you've raised it and the importance of it, um uh the development of the EU. But I mean let's let's be let's be evidently clear on this. What we see is um a Britain, uh the UK, uh now ending its relationship with the EU. There's a significant fight going on between Brussels, that is the EU headquarters, And the Italians, over this question about uh, spending, the Germans, of course, have driven a very tough line on austerity. The Hungarians and the Poles have exhibited strong nationalist uh, behavior. I mean, it it, it seems to me that you're looking at an EU that is in deep trouble.
1: Deep, yes. That would be an excellent word to use here. Um, (laughs) And, I, and you know, it looks to be that it'll get worse before it gets better. Uh-huh, uh, it, uh-huh. it is a huge blow t- to have Brexit coming uh, March 29th. But, you know, what's fascinating is really the EU has a whole host of other problems right. that are really, in many ways, for many of those countries, a lot more important. Britain, the Brexit is really more of a distraction for the EU right now. It's critical for, for Britain. Sure. Uh, but, it, but as you say, the, the authoritarianism in Central Europe. The figuring out how to manage the Italian situation, uh, you know, this is an economy that's much larger than the Greek economy. Uh, To have some kind of bailout would be uh, tremendously difficult, Mm -hmm. and gets caught up in all the politics within Europe. We're we're about to go through a major transition in Germany, right? Um, Right, and so you know, when you look back, for example, at emmanuel macron and when he when he ran for president and then as he came into the presidency you know he had all these grand ideas for how he wanted to reform and strengthen the eu and how he was going to work with merkel uh and that they were going to uh try to try to create some reforms to to strengthen the european union and now he's if he looks around who 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 does he have who are his partners right uh, right really really a very very difficult situation for europe and it doesn't help that the us is led by a president who hates the eu and has called the eu a foe
0: mhm mhm so you're suggesting that you know there is no immediate uh uh solution to the problem
1: Yeah, we can certainly identify lots of problems uh, (laughs) that um, it's it's hard to identify the problems than the solutions, that's for sure.
0: Okay, and I take it then, you know, uh, it it doesn't get any easier if you look at other um, members of the liberal order, that is, if you look at, you know, the newly emerging countries, uh, most particularly, you know, the kind of the Chinas, the Brazils, the Indias, um, you know, do you have any sense of how they want to uh, kind of deal with, contain, uh, however you want to describe it? Um, uh, Donald Trump, you know, he's there for at least two years.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, what's interesting is, of course, those countries that you just named, China, India, Brazil, have all benefited greatly from the order that was constructed. And, uh, and in fact, you know, the, the ability of China and India to lift hundreds of millions out of poverty is something that the U S if it could step back and look at the situation could, should say, wow, this was, this was a big success for something that we helped foster for all these years. This, this is, this is a good thing that people have been lifted out of poverty. But of course, it's created this sense of China uh, as the rising threat to the United States. Right. Right. You know, but I I think if we separate out China, India, Brazil, you know, we look at China, clearly there were economic issues that needed to be addressed and issues that were of concern, not just to the United States, but it's other, Mm -hmm. but other liberal partners and was one of the reasons for the trans Pacific partnership, among the twelve who uh, initially were part of it, and we see the eleven going forward without the United States because uh, they see this as very important and and partly that was created as a way to try to to try to deal with china and the and the um, concerns uh, about economic practices in China. It'd be a lot easier for the United States to address those if it was actually working Mm -hmm. with its partners. Instead, the United States has chosen to slap tariffs uh, on, you know, lots of countries, uh, including China. And we now have this trade war uh, with China that has negatively impacted, for example, soybean farmers in in Iowa who uh, uh, may have voted the way they did on Tuesday because of the, because of the impact that that has had. India you know, is a pretty status quo power, uh, right, right. Is, has a history of being non-aligned, uh, isn't looking to be, you know, allies with anybody look is looking for help as it looks at China and Pakistan and, um, is, uh, but there's always this, there's, there's sort of a limit to the partnership there. And, and, India also has a, has a, has a much more positive view of Russia than, uh, the U S and its allies right, have had. Right. And then Brazil, which has just gone through this election that has just, you know, elected uh, someone who, you know, it looks to be to the right, even of the people we've been talking about in the U S <laughs> and Europe, uh, you know, creates, creates challenges <laughs> there. So I think what it really does is really puts, it really puts the other members of the G seven in a really difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Japan, Canada, EU. What do what do they do to try to keep fostering sort of liberal principles? We've seen the efforts in trade again. TPP continuing. Uh, the EU and Canada, EU and Japan. Those those efforts are going to continue. It's just it's harder to sustain the order without U.S. leadership. than, for example, in the trade sphere. Yeah, uh, the World Trade Organization really is in danger of uh, being destroyed, basically by the United States. The the inability to replace judges means that we'll be in a situation where it doesn't. The WTO doesn't function effectively yep. in the resolution of disputes. So I, uh, so I, I think it's really hard, even as we see countries uh, want to continue. And again, in certain areas, China benefits greatly from continuation of a lot of what. The order has been so they we may see some unlikely uh, unlikely partners here.
0: Okay, well let, let me uh, you know ask you a little bit further on on China. I mean, it would appear uh, that you know uh, the Trump administration has shifted. Obviously, the conflict and rivalry over uh, over trade has. You know resulted in what you describe, which is these uh, the significant imposition of of tariffs right uh, and they're in the kind of national security world uh, they there and including that the speech uh, early in the month by uh, Vice President Pence which seemed to signal uh, or conclude kind of the end of if I can use the term engagement with China, into an, 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 a view which is that it's a rival, that it needs to be contained. Of course, that's something that the Chinese always argued anyhow, but mm-hmm. uh, leaving that aside, the question is, so how, how do we deal with U.S.-China policy in the face of um, America's uh,
1: new uh, foreign policy direction? So I think the thing... My sense of the calculation within the Trump administration is that they calculated that the U.S. could withstand this trade war better than the Chinese, mm-hmm. and they were going to impose these tariffs and basically <laughs> that the Chinese would have, would have no choice but to back down. That's my sense. Okay. Um, and I think they – I mean, you know, how does any Chinese leader – Back down in the face of something like that. I mean, if you're not giving if you're not giving a Chinese leader some way to save face in the, in a in a conflict, uh, I don't think and you know any Chinese leader would have to respond. Right. And so right. I don't. I, I just don't see this ending. I I think the um, and and that's one of the things that's just really, that's really puzzled me, about Trump. You know, it's so much been about how he can make better deals. All these past deals are terrible. Right. And, you know, in the two cases where we've seen deals, the the Korea-U.S. deal and then the new NAFTA, we basically had, and, you know, especially with the new NAFTA, you know, a year and a half of a lot of unpleasantness just to get us back basically to where we were with NAFTA plus TPP. So it's it's not really clear what the overall strategy is other than we're going to try to push our weight around and show throw our weight around and, and, you know, show these countries who's the boss. Yeah. And I I just, I don't really think that's going to work uh, with China.
0: Okay. I mean, even in the context, uh, you know, the, two agreements, the one with Korea and, and now the one in North America, you know, one thing you do get a sense of is that Trump, had, not surprisingly, I suppose, has a very particular focus. Yes, there are elements, uh, you know, in terms of the um, TPP that were incorporated, updating uh, e-commerce, etc., which had nothing. from. But But what's interesting is what uh, Trump and his people seem to focus on are on the manufacturing side. So if we look at the New Deal, uh, you know, the, the major change, and leave aside for the moment the the China provision, which I mm-hmm. want right. to mention, but but right. if, you, if you look at the big change, what you see is um, is this notion of increasing uh, the percentage that has to come from the three countries and raising mm-hmm. labor rates. I mean, he right. seems to have. You know, a focus on late nineteenth, early twentieth century economics. Right. I mean, am I am I being uh, unreasonable in in interpreting him that way?
1: Well, you know, I think the I think the best thing that's been written on the Trump foreign policy was a piece Brookings scholar Tom Wright did in January of twenty sixteen. Yeah. A year <laughs> a year before Trump became president. Yeah. Which I think was titled, you know, Trump's nineteenth century. Uh, Yep. foreign policy. Yes. And um, and I, I think that's, you know, he definitely has a view of the world. He's held a view of the world for a long time. It's interesting. We were talking before about NATO. Mm-hmm. On the security side, the people that he has in place, especially with Mattis there at the Pentagon, have a more mainstream view of national security and have kept the policy largely in place and really are their own views are at odds with his views or at least his expressed views Mm -hmm. and it's not true on the trade side on the trade side he has people around him right who share his views right so they they get amplified right and we you know on the in the economic space gary Cohn, who was there for the beginning, yes, is no longer there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you get folks, you have Navarro and Lighthouser and, and driving things, and they're just amplifying Trump, which makes the economic side different, I think, than the security side, where at least, you know, for as long as he's there, you've got Mattis, uh, in a, in a different space than Trump and is able to continue the policy that we had before.
0: Well, but does that, I mean, you very carefully have not, have not extended that view to John Bolton or to Secretary of State Pompeo. Does it extend to the, those two guys? Because uh, certainly Bolton doesn't have the kind of middle of the, and I don't mean this pejoratively at all, but the middle of the rope position on American foreign policy, uh, that, you know, we've seen in the, in the recent past.
1: Yeah, Bolton's a pretty strange character to be the national security advisor because he's, you know, getting back to the the sort of topic of a liberal international order. I mean, this is a guy who's really obsessed with Mm -hmm. what he considers to be invalid international law, you know, the, the danger of international agreements. I mean, think about the fact that the national security advisor of the United States gave his first speech as national security advisor on the International Criminal Court, uh, it's just you know it's it's a lot of small ball. Yes, from a guy who's in a position where he should be thinking big, big,
0: big and, picture. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he,
1: he clearly can't do that. You know, the other place where it's interesting, of course, is with Russia, because Trump certainly has talked about wanting to have a better relationship with Russia. Right. Um, you know, the one place where that was obvious for trying to create some U S Russia collaboration was in arms control, uh, trying to renegotiate the intermediate range nuclear force treaty from 30 years ago and update it. Right. And also extending new start, the strategic arms agreement that expires in 2021. And there Bolton clearly told the president, you know, this is a bad, these are bad deals for the United States. And right. I mean, Trump had already expressed that with respect to New START when he came in, but, um, you know, the sort of walking away from the INF Treaty. So, really, the one place where there might have been actual cooperation between the US and Russia is now gone uh, by the wayside, thanks to Bolton and his, um, you know, he, he just doesn't like international. He doesn't like agreements. He doesn't like treaties. He doesn't like arms control.
0: <laughs> well, and, and so and uh, then I'll raise uh, Mike Pompeo because, you know, in particular Pompeo is, is trying to deal with, is dealing with um, uh, the fallout from the uh, U.S.-North Korea meeting and the potential for another meeting, you know, how how, do you, how does Pompeo handle that? I mean, it would appear, you know, the recent threats by the North Koreans that they may restart their nuclear program, et cetera, et cetera. So where is uh, Pompeo on that and what can he do?
1: Well, you know, the North Korea situation ha- ha- has been so badly handled. I mean, I think we were all relieved that we left the fire and fury behind us. <laughs> right. Uh, and of course, you know, Trump created this massive crisis and then swung wildly in the other direction uh, with the bromance with Kim Jong Un and, and uh, you know, it's really sort of made a mess of things by making claims about things the North Koreans had agreed to that there's no way they would have agreed to what Pompeo and the president have been saying, which is essentially a unilateral uh, disarmament by mm-hmm. North Korea—it's not going to happen, right? So, and I think one of the one of the things that I guess it's not so puzzling, but you know, they they created this position of an envoy for North Korea, uh, Steve Began, who had worked on Capitol Hill in the 1990s, had had worked for Jesse Helms in the 90s, had worked in the George W. Bush administration, uh, then went into the private sector and has been at Ford Motor Company for a number of years, and they tapped him to be the the envoy for North Korea. Mm -hmm. Well, let him do his work. I mean, let him have quiet meetings with North Korean counterparts and painstakingly build some kind of relationship that would move a negotiation forward. And instead, it's so much public drama Mm -hmm. that is really um, it's not very helpful, and I just I, I just don't really uh, understand okay. uh, what Trump gets out of it
0: <laughs> so so let's go back to the big question then uh, can uh, I mean, my impression in listening uh, to you is that you think uh, notwithstanding everybody's you know disquiet that hunkering down may be the only Kind of uh, possible solution at the moment to uh, to Trump policy, but can the liberal order in fact survive um, the Trump
1: administration? So on, just on that last question, I mean, I just don't know um, okay. whether it can survive. And I think you know one one argument that's Damn. out there, uh, Evo Dodler and Jim Lindsay have just written this book, "The Empty yeah. Throne," and their argument is that it's really up to the other. U.S. partners to band together to save this thing. I mean, it's hard without American leadership. But if we just think about the issues of trade and security, I mean, on trade, I th- we will see other countries move forward with their own agreements with one another. And right. we've, we've seen that. I think we'll continue to see that. And I, I think that at least keeps open uh, the notion that that free trade agreements can be beneficial and win-win. Uh, okay. agreements for the countries involved. Okay. Um, that may not save the World Trade Organization, but, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the action uh, since the early 2000s has really been more bilateral and regional anyway than, in, you know, in terms of, I mean, the, the rounds, the old notion of these big rounds that we used to have with GATT and then the World Trade Organization, we'd have these huge multilateral agreements. Right. It's sort of gone by the wayside anyway. And and we were really seeing more bilateral and and more regional, smaller type of of arrangements. So so that may not be such a loss. I think the dispute settlement mechanism that the World Trade Organization has provided, I think that will be a loss. So that's unfortunate. I don't I don't really see how we get um, around the Trump assault on that. And then on the security side. Uh, You know, I hope NATO will survive Uh, the I think that the best that others can do is, yeah, try to stay out of his line of sight. Um, (laughs) Do the do some spending increases. Uh, Try not to get into huge fights about the two percent. You know, this two percent of GDP spending on defense issue. Right. You know, he'll certainly keep raising that. But I think, uh, you know, the Europeans and, and Canadians don't want to get into a big conversation with him about that. I, I think it's, it's largely trying to stay out of his line of sight and uh, and just working with counterparts. I mean, on the NATO side, working with counterparts uh, at the Pentagon in particular and the state department, uh, you know, I haven't talked about the state department very much because it's been so eviscerated right. during this administration. Uh, you know, at least in this case, there is an assistant secretary, Wes Mitchell, who's the assistant secretary for Europe and Eurasia, and he's very good. Um, and so that's helpful. So many parts of the department, you know, you don't have assistant secretaries so many places where we don't have ambassadors. Uh, it's uh, it, the state really can't function the way it ought to. So, so we're left uh, with a Pentagon that at least so far uh, is functioning mm-hmm. and functioning largely the way it used to. But, we could certainly see a change at the top there, you know, it would not be surprising if, if in the next week or two we see an announcement that Secretary Mattis um, has decided that he's moving on uh, mm-hmm. after after two years. And so uh, we'll have to we'll just have to see uh, who replaces him. But, you know, uh, Lindsey Graham seems to be auditioning for something. And um <laughs>
0: Okay. And, you know,
1: he's always been a strong supporter of NATO. So right, uh, right. You may, maybe you wouldn't see that much of a change there.
0: Oh, okay. Well, i, I got to ask you this one last question before we go. And uh, it's because uh, this weekend, of course, is the, uh, cele- in quote celebration of the 100-year uh, armistice. And many leaders are um, heading to France um, at the invitation of uh, President Macron of, of France uh, to um, you know to acknowledge the hundred year anniversary of the end of World War One, and it includes our good friend President Trump. So do you expect any uh, fireworks, or will he remain slightly muted uh, in terms of meeting with his uh, counterparts around the world?
1: So I think a lot of the meetings that he'll have will be. Um, separate, you know, the, the, yeah. the big event at, yeah. for this uh, gathering is this Paris Peace Forum. Yes. And, you know, which has been led by the French Foreign Ministry and uh, collaborating with others such as Sciences Po University. And, and the, the, I, it, I don't believe Donald Trump is going to be at the Paris Peace Forum. Uh, you know this is a forum that 's going to be celebrating multilateralism uh, i don 't believe he 's going to be there. My understanding is he had a conversation recently with President macron and that macron didn 't even mention the Paris mm-hmm. Peace forum to him i don't, i don 't think that macron would really want him there mm-hmm. uh, given that the the goal is to talk about the importance of of multilateralism so I think the 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 whole agenda is being set so that he can't prove that disruptive and whatever kind of side meetings he has, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, is he going to be meeting with Putin on the side? Um, you know, the Russians have said he is meeting with Putin and Trump has said he isn't meeting with Putin. So, uh, I guess, you know, we'll find out, but it's, right. um, right. yeah, I, I, I think, I think, you know, everybody learned from the G seven meeting in Canada in uh, in June. Yep. Uh, that you got to figure out a way to have a meeting without letting him uh, torpedo the whole thing. That's why the NATO meeting, the the, the NATO declaration, it wasn't even called a communiqué. You know, the NATO declar- summit declaration was put out, you know, at the beginning of the meeting so that he couldn't muck it up after he got there. Hmm. Uh, and I think that, I think this is the lesson, the, the big takeaway from the G seven in June was. Let's structure our meetings so that he can't ruin them.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, Jim, I really want to thank you for taking the time out to uh, kind of range around and discuss the various issues within the context of uh, uh, both American foreign policy and the liberal order um, efforts. And thank you for being with us on this.
1: Thanks for inviting me. This was great.
0: You've been listening to the Global Summetry Podcast. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.